leadership at the end of the day is about, did you make the lives of the people that you lead better? Did you help them grow? Did you um, help support them as they were doing the work of the organization? Did you set a vision for them in a way that helped them be their best? And I think as long as you walk into leadership with that kind of service mindset, you're gonna kill it. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Crisis, a word most of you are familiar with. As a CIO or senior IT leader, it seems our days are filled with one crisis or another. At no time was this more true than in the last couple of years. On Status Go, we've talked with leaders across a variety of industries and roles. We've talked about their leadership during the myriad of challenges we have all faced. Being able to lead and lead effectively during times like this is a skill, a skill that must be honed. Today's guest is Beth Rashley. Beth is an executive coach and the author of the brand new book, crisis-proof leadership. Her book not only defines what it means to lead through crisis, but it lays out the seven principles you need to develop in yourself and in your team. Welcome to Status Go, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Beth, I am thrilled to have you on the show. When I saw your new book come out, I could not wait to get my hands on it because just knowing you, I knew it was going to be good. And I tell you, it was it was everything I expected and more. Aww, I really, so I much. really love the book. That's very thoughtful. <laughs> well, let's introduce you to our audience for just a just a moment here, Beth. Could you talk a little bit about your journey and what kind of brought you to this point today? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a human resources background. I started my career in HR, uh, mostly in healthcare. And then I did this crazy thing when I was 27 and I moved to Washington, D.C. and started working at the CIA um, in the training and development That area. always sounds so cool. I know. Say, it's though. so <laughs> weird. It's still weird to talk about, frankly, but um, it's just what happened. So mm -hmm. while I was there, I had the opportunity to um, become part of, of a, leader, a team that was working with leaders and mm -hmm. helping leaders get better. And I fell right in love with that work and I've been doing it ever since. So happy to do anything I can to help leaders just serve others better. Yeah. And uh, you stepped out on your own a couple of years ago, I right? Did. And formed yeah. your, your consulting company. I did. So I'd been working internally um, at a couple different corporations in leadership development and just got the bug to go out on my own. And um, that has, has had lots of ups and downs over the last couple of years of pandemic and <laughs> things, but I haven't looked back, really love every minute of it. And I love getting to work with lots of different kinds of clients now. I love that uh, you took that step. And for our listeners, you know this, but Beth is one of the reasons I took my step into the entrepreneurial space, the uh, the expert business space, uh, she and I were in a, an executive mastermind group together for for some time prior to the pandemic, and uh, really enjoyed listening to her story and some of the things that she went through. But let's get to the book. I really want to dive into this, and I know you answer this question a, a little bit in the book. But what led you to 
put this book out and why now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like so many people, you know, I, I have one-on-one clients and corporate clients. And when the pandemic hit, leaders were suddenly required to do things in such a dramatically different way. And many of them were struggling to do that. And it got me really curious about crisis leadership um, and also like what it takes. What are the best practices? What are the things that are going to be most helpful um, to leaders as they're trying to navigate this. So as I started digging in, the more I dug in, the more I was like, oh, I think we might be thinking about this <laughs> in a totally different way now than we used to, because a lot of the old school research about crisis management and crisis leadership, it's like a separate set of tools that you pull out when a crisis happens and you do these three extra things, let's say. And what I found, like, if you look at the last couple of years, I want you to really search for, like, when has there not been some sort of crisis happening, right? It's been nonstop. And I don't think that's new. I don't think that just magically happened in 2020. I think it was happening well before that. I think the amount of things that happened made us go, oh, this feels different now. Um, than maybe it did before. And and as I looked at that research, I was like, okay, I think we have to think about this differently. And as I started digging in, I found that the leaders who were already doing a pretty good job at the basics were the ones who were doing great (laughs) navigating the crisis. And the ones that had some tweakings to do, you know, just little fine tunings, they were the ones that were really struggling. Um, And that's what led me to kind of come up with the model that I outline in the book and just the whole approach to how we should think about this topic. I love how you start off. And one of the first things you do in the book is you define what is a crisis? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Because sometimes we, we get bombarded with them coming at us from every direction and not every problem is a crisis. It may be a problem. Yes, but it's not a crisis. So what is a crisis? Yeah. I mean, I think you know, it can be anything from, right? Like we have to rework, right? We have to do a reorganization. It could also be something personal, like um, I'm getting divorced or um, my kid is really ill and I suddenly have to to take on a caretaking role. And, and so it can have lots of different things, but what, how we need to think about it as leaders is that it typically contains three components that we need to watch for. So the first is some sort of threat to the organization. So that, again, if you think about like a, a typical reorg, I've worked with lots of different organizations that like to, you know, move teams around. Um, the threat to the organization there is you're messing with team dynamics, right? You, right. you, you don't know what's going to happen as you, you know, pick up these people and move them to this team or, you know, you, you're really, that's the threat there. Um, typically a crisis also has some sort of element of surprise. So we didn't know this was coming. It, it kind of blindsided us. And then the last component is also that in the midst of both of those things, you have to still make really effective and fast decisions. And that's really what a crisis is. And again, I invite you to really like our listeners to like really think about like how often is that happening to you right now? And my guess is if you really think about it through that lens, it's happening a couple times a week. <laughs> I bet. Uh, probably so. And, yeah. And I, I remember one of the one of the episodes we did on Status Go back, I think it was in 2020, was we interviewed uh, Stephen Johns of a company called One Cause. They're a nonprofit software fundraising platform. And 
Stephen talked about the the dual crisis that hit a lot of companies back then. We had the we had the pandemic, and we were all dealing with that. And then we had the murder of George Floyd, yeah. and some of the things that happened in our societies as a result of that. And it really did hit all three of your of your points, right? Mm-hmm. It was uh, both of those things were threats to our organization for one reason or another. They they came as a surprise. Uh, no one was predicting, obviously, the pandemic, uh, right. and they required fast decision making. Yeah. Uh, as we think about it, I love how you encourage our listeners to think about a time when they weren't facing multiple <laughs> crises. Yeah. And th- the other thing that you spend some time at the beginning of your book defining is what is leadership? Yeah. So what is leadership to you and and how does that manifest itself in a time of crisis? Yeah, I mean, I I think at at my core, I think of leadership as service. Um, I'm, I'm all in on a servant leader's heart model of leadership. And I do that unapologetically (laughs) because I just think, and that's based on not just what I know about people, um, but it's also what I know about business. Because if you look at businesses that really lean in hard to that type of model and really hire for it and encourage it and train it and build it in leaders, those organizations do better financially too. So it can, you know, it's not just a touchy-feely topic, it actually gets Mm -hmm. results. And that's why, that's part of why I'm really passionate about it. So, you know, leadership at the end of the day is about, did you make the lives of the people that you lead better? Did you help them grow? Did you um, help support them as they were doing the work of the organization? Did you set a vision for them in a way that helped them be their best? And I think as long as you walk into leadership with that kind of service mindset, you're going to kill it. (laughs) Like there's, that is at the end of the day, if we can just make sure that we're hiring for that, a lot of our leadership challenges would go away, in my opinion. One of the things I want to touch on uh, before we dive into your seven principles is the the structure of the book, because I think that was, that was part of what I liked about it. Obviously the content uh, without a (laughs) doubt, Uh, but the way that you broke it up, uh, it was almost like you were speaking to me because you had reflection sections, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm a big proponent of journaling, and in my mind, journaling and reflection are kind of the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so that real that part really spoke to me. But then you also have here's how you apply it in a time of crisis. Here's here's the principle. Here's how you apply it, and then you recap. And I just loved that structure because it really makes the book digestible. Um, My hope, like, that's so nice to hear because my hope when I was writing it and when I was thinking about, okay, how do I structure it? How do I um, make it as digestible to people as possible? I really wanted it to feel like you were in like a really top-notch, high-quality leadership class. (laughs) That's how I wanted it to feel, that you would stop and get to think about something and write about it. And you would get this really cool tool that would help you have a better feedback conversation and I wanted that to come out in book form. So that's really, yeah. really nice to hear because well, hopefully it. that picked up. So yeah, that, I did that check. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. did that one thing correct. So that's, that's nice to hear. Well, well, let's dive into your, to the seven principles. And uh, for our audience, I'm just going to, I'm going to read them off. And then Beth, I'd like to step into each one of them 
uh, and, and hear your thoughts on them. The seven principles are extreme self-awareness, resilience, results-oriented, grow others, communicate clearly, demonstrate empathy, and build trust. That is an awesome list of seven principles. So let's start with the first one. And I love extreme (laughs) self-awareness. So talk to us a little bit about what that is and what's extreme about it. So I think uh, when I started talking about the self-awareness topic and I started writing this chapter, the extreme came from, again, thinking about the best leaders. So the ones who are really thriving and have teams that are highly functioning and engaged and happy at work and high retention, all the good things that you want to have happen in, in your company. Um, the, the leaders that were really doing the best were the ones who had not just like average self-awareness, but like <laughs> incredibly high self-awareness, like the most self-aware uh, leaders out there were the ones who were um, doing the best. And when I dove into, okay, what does it take to get that? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you really stay focused on it? Um, Part of it is just that, that you can't ever view self-awareness as, okay, I know it, I'm done, check, (laughs) move on with my life. Um, Self-awareness is one of those annoying competencies as a leader that you have to keep your eye on all the time because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, tomorrow's blind spot is just right around the corner. (laughs) So if you don't have methods and practices in place to help yourself stay self-aware, it, you know, it, it can get out of hand incredibly quickly. And I also think self-awareness is one of those qualities that, um, you know, you can get away with lower self-awareness for a while as a leader. And then there's going to be a point in your career where that's going to be a game changer. Yeah. And I've seen some leaders really self-destruct due to lack of self-awareness. Um, so I was hoping with the word extreme, it would really stress the importance <laughs> of it and why we should really be focused on it as leaders, because I think it's the most important of all those principles. I think adding the word extreme in front does just what you hoped it would do. It really emphasizes it. When, when I think about uh, extreme self-awareness, it's it's continuous. And yeah, the blind spot may be around the corner, as you say, but it's also you're digging deeper and and deeper as you're going along. Um, Because especially in crisis, uh, we we go back to our default behaviors when we're under pressure and in crisis Uh, and being aware, being (laughs) self-aware that we have a tendency to do that. I would imagine that helps us uh, put the red light up and say, no, I've got to, I've got to react differently to this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing I heard time and time again, interestingly from my clients who, you know, make regular time for coaching and we're doing that before the pandemic even hit part of the gift of, of having a coach. (laughs) If you've never had a leadership coach before is dedicated space to do just that, like reflect what's happened Mm -hmm. the last couple of weeks. What went well? What did you really kill? What was a disaster area and why? Mm -hmm. And, and to really hold space for that on a regular basis. I think that's one of the kind of sometimes overlooked benefits of having a coach. Yeah. Because I think if you have a, a coach, especially uh, third party outside your organization, you, bet. Right? Yeah. you can be far more open because the coach doesn't have an agenda. You can yeah. talk about things uh, with them that you really may not share with your peers. 
you may not feel comfortable sharing with your boss and it helps you unpack that. So totally yeah. agree yeah. Uh, that, that uh, coaching is, is key. The coach that I used for a number of years, uh, Dr. Dan Miller, just tremendous. And I, I owe him where <laughs> I got in my career yeah. from the seven years uh, he and I spent together exploring that. So yeah. well, let's move on to resilience. Sure. It, it's something that we have talked a lot about on Status Go, uh, the leadership trait of resilience, and especially as the pandemic kind of went on and on and on <laughs> and on. Mm-hmm. How do you look at resilience? And then again, how does it apply during a crisis? Yeah, so I think resilience of of all of the principles is the one that is is you know it's t- it has to be top of mind during a crisis because you'll need those resilient skills the most because it's all about how do you bounce back? How do you bounce back when mm-hmm. um, something unexpected happens? When something bad happens? When <laughs> you know something really stressful happens? How do you handle that um, situation? And to your earlier point about so many of us when we experience high stress, you're, you're much more likely to go back to default behaviors. Unfortunately, many of our default behaviors aren't ideal, right? Like our, mm-hmm. our, our first response isn't always the best response. So people with higher resilience skills are able to kind of stop themselves and give themselves a little bit more space to hopefully make a, a better decision, a more effective decision at the end of the day. I love that, uh in the way that you talk about resilience is that it's the way you bounce back. Yeah. Because so many times we think as leaders that crisis shouldn't impact us. Right. But resilience isn't about uh, not having an impact from whatever crisis is going (laughs) on. It's bouncing back from it. It's like the adage about uh, courage, right? Courage is, Courage is not a lack of fear. Courage is taking action when you're afraid. Afraid, yeah, that's exactly right. right. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're when you think about resilience, how do you how do you build that in yourself, and then how do you build that in your teams? Yeah, I mean, I think the hard thing about resilience, um, and I've got some tools in the books that can be helpful with it. But the the thing that I'll um, I'll just say as like a caveat with resilience is it's incredibly personal. So what helps me with my resilience might be dramatically different than what helps you. And that's what's tricky about it (laughs) because people Uh want there to be like this recipe. If I do these three things, I'm going to be super resilient. Check. Yeah. Like we want it to be a checklist and and resilience is just super annoying and it's just not a check, a checklist. So when I work with people on resilience, either in class or one-on-one with coaching, one of the things that I really encourage people to do is view like, view it as an experiment. I'm going to try this thing and I'm going to see how I feel. I'm going to pay attention to how I feel. Mm -hmm. Just the act of paying attention (laughs) to how you're feeling, why you're feeling that way, what triggered that, that actually helps your resilience. Just that, that pause, um, because you'll become more aware. You'll, um, you'll figure out patterns, you know, it just helps in a lot of different ways. Um, and, and knowing what your what parts of resilience you're naturally good at and come mm-hmm. really easily to you and the couple that you might struggle with can also be really helpful. So for instance, for me, um, I'm a chronic people pleaser. That is my um, gift and my curse. It has been my mm-hmm. entire life. So when things get really crazy, I have a lot of things going on. I'm perfectly willing to let my own health slide. 
Like that'll be the first thing I check off the list. It's anything related to me. So I have to know that about myself and know, okay, I can't let that get to zero, (laughs) just my inclination, my natural inclination. And how can I continue to do some things that really serve me and my own health during those times? So it's just about noticing more than anything else with resilience and really figuring out what works for you, which makes Mm -hmm. it sometimes tricky. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's so personal because a lot of it has to do with what we've been through. So let's move on to the next one. Number three, results oriented. Yeah. That, that one to me was interesting to see on a list of leadership principles. So talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I think it's interesting in that it doesn't hit a lot. Like that's not something a lot of leadership books talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're not getting results for your organization, you're not going to get to continue to be a leader there. And that's just, you know, the sad reality of it. So results matter. Um, but how you get those results and, and the way um, that works for your team and your um, culture is also super, super important. And the piece here that I found really fascinating, I, I read and this is referenced in the book um, and the study. It's a Harvard Business Review study. But I, I read this study that was um, measured, okay, what when do you think somebody's a good leader? <laughs> What's the perception of a good uh-huh. leader? And they asked, uh, you know, if somebody was super results focused, how likely were you um, to think that they were a great leader? And, and the, I'm going to get the number wrong, but it was something like 70%. Um, and then they asked, okay, if you think somebody's a really nice person, they're super social, what do you think? And the number's lower, but it's still, let's say, 60%. It's in that mm-hmm. ballpark for sure. Um, but the magic is if you have both of those, the likelihood that people think you're a good leader is like 90%. Oh, wow. So like it goes through the roof if you can uh-huh. master that combination. But when they went through and dug, 1% of leaders have that magical combination of being good at both. And I read that and I was like, first I had like took me a bag. <laughs> like, uh-huh. wait, let's just, is that right? Is that, can that really be true that 1% of leaders have that combination? And then when I really dug into it, I was like, you know, I think so. And that's part of why so many leaders struggle with feedback. Because <laughs> yeah. if you think about a feedback conversation, what does it take to have a really effective feedback conversation? You have to balance the person and the relationship mm-hmm. with the person and the trust with the person, all the good social stuff that happens with the person. And how do I still continue to hold you accountable yes. for the results that you're required to get in your job? And again, think about how many leaders you know or yourself, how hard you have to work to do that as a leader yeah. and how how rare that capability actually is. And I think that's where the magic of this one is. The, so what I focus the on the, and the awesome. yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. the accountability piece. And so what I really focus on in the book is, okay, let's build those two separate skills of social skills and the accountability piece because you yeah. have to still have that um, if if you're going to really be in that um, kind of top box when it comes to leaders. I, I was on a call last week with a client and he asked me that that exact same question is how do I hold my team accountable and still have them like me. I, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, that, that was kind of that's, that's what he asked, right? Yeah. All right. Well, this kind of dovetails nicely into the next one. It's also one that I know you, you value quite a bit based yeah. on your work, grow yeah. others. Yeah. 
how do we do that during a crisis? And this one's hard. And this is the one, again, like if, if you look at the list, what's most likely to get missed during a crisis is this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and this is all about first knowing your people, knowing what what are they trying to develop in? What are they doing a really fantastic job at? What might they be struggling with? What's their long-term career goal? Um, what do they want to be doing? How can you help them with that? So those are you know, all kind yep, of complicated yep. questions. Um, and then it's continuing to make time for that when, you know, potentially you as a leader, your schedule just went berserk because you, you know, some crisis happened. Um, so the important tip I would give here is just don't lose sight of it. So, you know, no team that I've ever met in crisis completely stops meeting during a crisis. Right. Sometimes you right. even meet more during a crisis. I talked to a lot of leaders who during, you know, early days in the pandemic, they were meeting daily because they found that was really helpful for them doing kind of like a morning huddle. Um, Just don't lose sight of this one and try to build it into the cadences you already have for meeting. That would be my tip here. And lean into coaching skills. Um, I outline uh, uh, what I call the fast coaching method in the book, which is really all about, you know, if 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 a team member is coming to you with a question or a problem, um, our, our gut as leaders is to, you know, jump in and fix. Um, we love to do that as leaders, myself included. I love to fix a problem for other people. <laughs> we yeah. all do. I think, you know, it's really rewarding. But if you're trying to build skill in somebody else, you're you're serving them better if you can stop and help them solve it for themselves. Because so often they have the answer already. It's just about, you know, kind of releasing the creativity maybe yeah. in the moment. Giving them permission. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So leaning into things like coaching skills during a crisis, also super, super helpful. Well, and I think the the crisis also gives us the opportunity, and I love that you use the word coach, to explain to our teams kind of our why. Why why are we doing what we're doing in the midst of this crisis? And in some ways that helps them grow as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. The next one, something that we've (laughs) we sometimes fail on quite often. We tend to communicate once and think we've communicated. So the (laughs) next one is communicate clearly. What does that entail? And again, under the pressure of a crisis, uh, how do you make sure that you're paying attention to that one? Yeah. I mean, again, especially through this crisis lens, what I would really encourage leaders to do, um, and there's actually a great um, resource for this in the book, to really look at how you're communicating, not just what or how often that's important for sure, um, but take take a crisis as an opportunity to take a hard look at how. So what channels are you using for what? So I can't tell you how many leaders I work with that struggle to keep up with email. I'm sure a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. can relate with that, right? If you're working still in a corporate setting, especially in IT, not unusual to get four or 500 emails a day, right? right, right. Um, I think that's probably the going rate for a leader these days, <laughs> somewhere in that ballpark, right? Uh-huh. That's a lot to keep up with on top of a heavy meeting schedule, on top of actually trying to serve and take care of your team. Um, so the invitation I always give leaders is like, pull up and do an audit. How many of those four or 500 emails are coming from your team? And sometimes that's half, right? Like maybe half of those emails are coming from people that you have some control over what happens and how we do it, right? You can influence that. Maybe you can't influence up. Maybe you can, maybe you can't, but you can for sure influence the team that you're leading. So my invitation there is just have a conversation as a team. How are we using email right now? 
is it helpful? Is it making us all super stressed out? So I have a client who implement, you know, really took a hard look at that. And she was meeting weekly with her team members anyway. A lot of the things that were coming at her in email would end up being things they would discuss in their one-on-one meetings anyway. So she just encouraged them, hey, as things come up during the week, can you guys can just start keeping a list? And then we'll just yeah. talk through those in a one-on-one. Now, if it's really emergent, I would actually prefer you text me or instant message me. That way I don't miss it because it's so you know easy for me to miss an email. And they kind of change the rules for how they're using it. Game changer. Now yeah. everybody's yeah. getting what they need. When they need it, she's not overwhelmed. <laughs> she's much better able to keep up with the important emails that are there. So like simple shifts like that with communication and not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it and where you're saying it. Super important with this one. I, I think communication is, is so vital. And I love that you talk about the, the leader who talks to uh, her team about this is the way I want to be communicated with. Yeah. Because I think so many times we, we communicate with others the way we want to be communicated with, <laughs> not the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. And it gets lost. Yeah. I had a leader. This is a funny story. Just a quick story. So I had a leader when I worked at the CIA, my very last leader that I had there. Phenomenal leader, really great guy. Uh, But he used to work in, before he entered the leadership development space, he used to um, work in the Directorate of Intelligence, which is the part where, you know, all all this intelligence from assets is coming in. And he was in that kind of role post 9-11. And you can imagine what life at the CIA must have been like post 9-11. I didn't start till 2005, but I can tell you in 2005, it was still nuts. <laughs> so I can't yeah. imagine like post 9-11, how bad it was. So in any event, he had, you know, been at work for forever. He was driving home late and he was reflecting on his day and he was like, I didn't do anything but chase email all day. I didn't talk to a single team member. You know, I was in a lot of meetings, but like, I, that's just not an effective use of his time. And because of the kind of person he was, he made this decision. He was like, I'm just not going to answer emails anymore. And he didn't communicate it. He didn't do anything. He just stopped going into his email. And he did it as kind of an experiment. And guess what happened? Like nothing. He was fine. Because what would happen is somebody would come to his office and say, hey, did you see that email? He'd be like, I didn't. Will you tell me what's inside of it? And then they would. (laughs) And the issue would actually get solved. And he was happier at his job. His team was still getting what he needed. So a couple weeks in, he finally confessed to (laughs) what he had done. And it's just, you know, it's a stupid example, but that is the magic of, of sometimes the, the channel that we, you know, we put so much emphasis on that in life. And, you know, I'm telling you, if this guy could knock off email in the midst of that crisis, you can examine your relationship with email. I promise you, you can. Yeah. Yeah. Puts, puts my inbox in a whole different way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, let's talk about one of my favorite leadership terms that seems to have emerged uh, recently is empathy. Oh, yeah. Talk about empathy and how you build that in yourself, you build it in your team, uh, and how do you show empathy during a time of crisis? Yeah, for the, this is one of my favorite chapters in the book, and partly because I um, interviewed a good friend of mine, Lisa Mertz, which I can't remember, Jeff, if you know her or not. If you don't, um, you should. I'm connected with her, but I don't think I've oh, She's so great. She'd be a great guest for you too. <laughs> a little okay. shout out for Liesl. She's amazing. But her whole, like her whole business is around helping corporations, um, 
you know, get better at taking care of their people. She has a great program called Handle with Care that's just fantastic because there is this hole in organizations of what do we do for people to take care of them when bad things happen? So I interviewed her for this chapter of the book, got some really great tips. So, you know, part of the struggle point, I think here for leaders with empathy, a lot of times empathy comes natural to a lot of us. I think especially people who tend to step into leadership jobs, um, most of us get into it to help other people. So this isn't a huge stretch, but where it can get really challenging is when super hard things happen, like you have a team member who has a child die or a parent die, or um, they go through a divorce. Okay. What do I do? What do I say? Like, what are the logistics of it? Um, So I outlined some things kind of to say and not to say, which I think are really helpful. But then the other thing that that really came out of this is if you can think about, okay, what's an act of service that you're just comfortable with so that when things happen, you just kind of have that on, on demand. Like you just know you can offer that. Um, That just takes, I think some of the stress of those situations away. Um, So that could be something as simple as I know when things, you know, when something like this happens, I don't cook, I don't, like to do, you know, but I'm happy to throw some money at the problem. So I'm happy to provide a DoorDash gift card. Maybe that would be helpful to somebody, or maybe you are somebody who really loves pets. So you're willing to volunteer to walk their dog or to take their dogs for them while they're doing other stuff. Great. So, you know, you can offer that to people who have pets, but just like planning ahead for these things, I think is really important. And as far as what to say, the biggest, the biggest lesson here is if it's a cliche, don't say it. <laughs> so, you know, like, don't say things like they're in a better place. Like, that's not helpful. Oh, that's yeah. just not yeah. helpful. Yeah. Um, the best thing you can do is if you're stuck is just say, I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry that this is happening for you. Yeah. And I'm here for you. And I'm here to listen. I'm here to provide service. Whatever you need, I'm here. Yeah, I, I think that's the best thing we can do. Yeah, the, the, exactly. People want to be heard, and yeah. that's a, a great way. Um, I saw, I think it was our, uh, I think it was Alex Perry who yeah. wrote a post recently about instead of saying this, say that. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that post. It was a great post. Yeah. Yeah. But it's exactly what you're talking about. Don't yeah. use the cliches. Here's some alternatives. Don't say, I know how you feel, because yeah. no, you really don't. No. Right. Uh, Even just shifting that to, I hear you and I, I, I can imagine how that feels and I'm heartbroken for you. Like that, even just that is a helpful like reframe. And I think your point too, of just providing a safe, a safe space for people to talk about hard things, I think is also super helpful. So I have a friend, I tell the story in the book, I have a friend who um, lost her first child at, at like three days, you know, like. (sighs) And I remember when she was going through that, first, not knowing what to say, because it's too horrifying. (laughs) Like you just, there isn't. And second, like, you know, just not knowing how to care for her. (laughs) And I remember, gosh, it was probably a couple years later. um, I think it was at an anniversary of his death. And I just happened to be with her and I could tell she was upset. And I was just kind of sitting with her. And she said the hardest thing is like, no, there's no place for her to talk to talk about him. Like people don't want to say his name or bring it up with her because they think it's going to make her upset. She's always thinking about him. (laughs) That's, that's a given, but the best gift I can give give to her is to say, you can talk to me about that anytime. I will listen to you anytime. And to continue to ask her 
about him and to remember the anniversary and to think about those things for her because it didn't just because it happened 13 years ago, it doesn't matter. It, it happened yesterday for her in a exactly. lot of ways. Yeah. I love that. Giving them the, the, the freedom and the space to talk about the loss um, yeah. or, or whatever's going on in your yeah. life. Empathy is, is a foundational to me. It's a foundational leadership skill. The, the last one that you mentioned in the book is build trust. Yeah. Talk to us about building trust. And then I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit <laughs> and okay. ask you to talk about rebuilding trust. Yeah. That's a tricky one too. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the trust thing is, um, you know, it can be tricky as a leader because it, it is often a balancing act between sharing enough of yourself with your people that they can feel like they know you and they can feel like, um, you know, they can get an underlying sense of who you are and what's important to you and what they can expect from you. And also not sharing so much of that, that it then becomes uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, like you don't want to overshare, like that's not the goal here with trust. But if you don't, um, disclose a little bit about what's happening for you. People, you know, they can't, they can't guess. And then they spend all of their time like, Ooh, what's going on with her? I can't really tell what's happening. What's she thinking right now? And they're distracted by that. And then they can't focus on the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So one of the most important things I would say with trust is to really focus on your why and saying your why behind your behavior as often as you possibly can to the point where it almost might feel super unnatural. And one of the best like phrases I have for that is intention stating. So intention stating is just literally saying, Hey, we're going to have this meeting. My intention behind having this meeting is blah, 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 whatever your intention is. Mm -hmm. um, but we expect people to just guess what those are, oh, what our yeah. intentions are. And that people can tell, and we just can't. All we can see is the behavior. We don't know why you're doing what you're doing. Right. So if you can just get in the habit of saying that out loud more often, incredibly helpful. The same thing is also really helpful to your question of rebuilding trust. That's that's the best tip I would give again for rebuilding mm -hmm. trust. Something happens if you misstep, which is going to happen. Like it just is. <laughs> we just need to get that in our mind. We all know this. We all have relationship with people. Sometimes things go wrong. Um, the best thing you can do is say, you know, my intention in saying or doing whatever it is I did was this. I can see that was a miss and I apologize mm -hmm. and I commit to doing better in X, Y, or Z way. And then actually doing that, following yeah, through yeah. on it is really, really important when, um, you know, you've got some sort of trust issue and also just know that that's going to take some patience, like whatever, whatever time it took you to build the relationship the repair weirdly takes longer because now they're like, Ooh, wait, something was that a fluke or is that like a common thing? Exactly. <laughs> so it actually yeah. takes a minute and you have to just kind of keep proving yourself for a little bit and um, just know that that's normal and, and don't shy away from it and think it's kind of a lost cost before you should. Well, this has been awesome. And, and for our, our listeners out there, I think you really need to, to get crisis proof leadership. It is, it's a great book. You've heard a lot of the, the insights Beth shared today, but before we get to our call to action, Beth, because you know, I always love to, to wrap this up with a call to action for our listeners. I'd like you to tell our listeners a couple of things. One is where can they get the book? 
And then you have a brand new podcast that you've started. Uh, I do. Diamond Dogs, is that right? The Diamond Dogs podcast, yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that and tell us where we can get your book. And then I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you for a call to action for our listeners. Okay, love that. So um, where you can find me, if, if you want to follow along, get more information, you can find me on Instagram. I'm Beth Rashley Author. On Instagram, I'm also on LinkedIn. I post a couple of times a week. Um, as Jeff said, I do have a podcast. It's brand new. We just launched it. I'm a co-host of the Diamond Dogs podcast with my good friend, Jason Barnaby. And if you're a Ted Lasso fan, if you love that show, basically what we do is we go episode by episode um, talking about the show, but not just the show, but like, where are the leadership lessons from us? Because weirdly, it's a great comedy show, but it's also a great show about what we should be doing in life and how we can be better leaders. And um, I'm really grateful that Jason and I both saw that connection and we're, we've just been having a blast um, with the podcast. So uh, go check that out for sure. Absolutely. And even for those of us who have never watched an episode of Ted Lasso, we can still learn a lot from the episodes. I, I, I tell oh, you, it's, I love that. And it's a I lot of that. fun. It's a lot of fun to listen to. So Beth, we are all about action here on Status Go. And we really love to leave our listeners with one or two things that they should go do tomorrow because they listen to our conversation today. So what are one or two things they should do? I love that. And so the, uh, the best tips I have, so I have two kind of suggestions for that. First, I actually have a values activity that you can find on my website. So one of the things that I talk about a lot in the extreme self-awareness chapter is just how important it is as leaders to know what's important to us, what, what is most important to us, and to be able to communicate that well with other people. So I've got a free resource on my website. You're welcome to check that out. It's just Beth, um, I'm sorry, rashleyconsulting.com slash book is where you can find that resource. It's towards the bottom of the page on the right. You'll find it. It's in a big blue box. Um, so I would start there. That's a great, it's just, you know, probably a half hour, 45 minutes of your time. Um, and it's just a great level setting of What's most important to you? And then maybe share it with somebody. <laughs> maybe share it with your team. Hey, I did this values activity thing. And these are the things that I, I found were really important to me. Do you guys see that in me? Do you see, am I communicating that well to you? Um, am I living up to that with my behavior? That'd be a really fun conversation to have with your team. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would really encourage, again, on the self-awareness front, because I think this is, a, this, this is number one, both an easy one to lean into, and number two, uh, one that we should all just keep our eye on all the time, if we're going to have that super high level of self-awareness, is to really try to get in the habit of reflecting on your day in some way. So that can be as simple as um, jotting something down as you're walking out the door. What are two things that went really well? What are two things that were a dumpster fire? Just write those down every yeah. every day for a couple of weeks. And then the beauty of that is to then go back and read it and look for trends. Like what's happening with it? Yeah. Are there yeah. some trends in the things that are going really well or the, the things that are going really badly? So maybe for three days in a row, you wrote down, gosh, I didn't get enough time with my kiddo, or I seem to keep yelling at this same staff member. <laughs> so maybe I need to get to the bottom of that what's happening. <laughs> no, people never yell at anybody at work, but we know it does. So, you know, maybe you see a trend there that then helps you kind of dive in. And again, get just a little bit more self-aware about what's happening um, to you during the day. I love that. I love starting with a, a couple of things to 
clue you in on self-awareness, extreme self-awareness. <laughs> Beth, thank you so much. This has been so much fun to talk to you about the book. And uh, I, I just have enjoyed this so much. Oh, me too. I appreciate you having me on. And if anybody wants to grab a copy, you can get it everywhere books are sold. So Awesome. To our listeners, if you have questions or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. Our show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Beth Rashley. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.